Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This week, I talked to the brilliant Hadassier about one of my favourite subjects, Marxist political economy. Her excellent book, A People's Guide to Capitalism, does what so few books have done well in the past, provides a concise and readable introduction to Marxist thought. Today, we discuss key concepts like capital, class and imperialism and apply them to the current crisis gripping the capitalist world system. Thank you so much, as always, to our amazing patrons who make this show possible. If you want access to the full hour-long episode of this show, as well as full-length interviews with previous guests like Naomi Klein and Dr. Cornell West, then support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash a world to win pod. There's a link in the description. If you want to support the show in another way, please give us a rating on iTunes to keep us up in the charts and share your favourite episodes on social media, tagging at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And now here is Hadassier on why Marx is still relevant. The way that mainstream economics treats capital, it's as though it's a matter of just numbers of stock valuation of, you know, how do we determine whether the economy is doing well or not? Is the stock market up or down? You know, the way that Marx looked at capital was as a social relation, you know, that Mm. you can't understand economics by just doing math. You know, you have to understand what's the relationship behind these processes. We live in a political economic system that is a social relation of production, one that's based on the exploitation of the many for the benefit of the few. And so when you look at what is capital, what is labor, what's our relationship, uh, you have to start out from, from that question of what's the process at play, who is benefiting from it, towards what end, how is value getting extricated towards whose benefit and whose control, you know, you have to start out with these social questions before you delve further in to see how these processes play out and what the economic laws of motion are of the system as well as its contradictions. And what does it mean concretely to treat capital as a social relation, as you've said? Because a lot of people are going to hear this term capital and they're going to think either if you're a mainstream economist, maybe you think kind of fixed capital like a stock of buildings or means of production or whatever or maybe you know if you're a lay person you might think of it as like money in the bank what does it mean to treat these things these you know objective uh, material things that exist in the world as capital because of the way in which they emerge from this particular set of social relations right so ultimately it's a question of power and what kind of say so you have, what kind of relationship you have to the process of production. So when a capitalist has capital, yes, it means they have money and a a certain amount of money, but they have enough capital, enough wealth that can be invested into buying both the machinery and the goods and the, the factories, the warehouses, et cetera, et cetera, the software, and, you know, that they can purchase labor power from us purchase our ability to labor and put it to work. So I might have, you know, a certain amount of money in the bank if I'm lucky and I can pull together with that money this or that item, but do I have both 
the money and the social position to be able to invest in the means of production, what Marx talked about as a means of production, the, the factories, the software, et cetera. And the vast majority of us, you know, have, you know, absolutely do not have the resources to do such a thing. And, and importantly, you know, and this is why I began the book with a history of the birth of capitalism is that mm. capitalism was birthed out of a process of expropriating masses of people from the land that, that they lived on and the land that sustained them. Um, so, you know, not that life for, for serfs was good uh, before capitalism under feudalism, but there was an ability that people had to grow their own crops and feed themselves and their families to whatever extent, some more than others. But capitalism depended on removing the vast majority of people from the land so that we don't have a choice but to sell our labor in order to subsist. And so we enter into this very unequal relationship from the get-go because we don't have another option. Do we work for somebody else or do we starve or, or are unable to feed our families? So that that's the sort of social relationship that underpins the whole process. And then, you know, what flows from there is, yeah, is where, where we get into the uh, daily reality of capitalism. So you've started talking a little bit about um, class there in terms of, you know, the necessity of selling one's labor power um, to survive versus ownership of the means of production. And I want to know, and obviously Mark says, you mentioned the birth of capitalism, it's the classic quote of the history of all existing human societies, the history of class struggle. What differentiates the Marxist understanding of class from more modern understandings of class? And actually, what makes it different to the way that we really talk and think about class in our daily lives? Because I think this is something that can become quite like confusing and jarring to people when Marx talks about class, he's not talking about where you went to school or what you sound like. He's talking about something very concrete. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think that's really important. And I think, you know, certainly in the U S it's absolutely confusing and mystified where there's an, like an obsession in the United States about the middle class and that we live in a middle-class country the vast majority of people are supposedly middle class. And then there's kind of like, you know, around the fringes, there's poor people on one end and very rich people on the other end. And most of us are ostensibly middle class and politicians always talk about how they're going to save the middle class, et cetera. And that is a very confusing way of looking at it. And it, and it, and it really depends on this descriptive kind of analysis of class, like you're saying about how mm. much money exactly do you make? Where did you go to school, etc. And again, for, for Marx, the question goes back to a relational definition that class is a relationship of exploitation. What is your relationship to the conditions of production, the products of that process of production? You know, who gets to control what it is that you've made at your workplace, uh, who gets to control mm. the products and the, and the, and the profits, uh, and what's your relationship to other classes. So, you know, for, for the, the capitalist class, like, you know, like we just talked about, you know, it's the people that own the means of production and can set us to work 
on those um, on those tools or services or factories, wherever it is, can set us to work in order to produce goods that they then control. So in, in that sense, actually, the vast majority of people are working class. In, in the U.S., it's something like, you know, three quarters of the population. Um, mm. and, and if you look at it globally, the number is, is much greater even. But we, we have basically only our ability to sell our labor power, our ability to work. Mm. And, and capitalists then, you know, buy and command that labor power. And that's the relationship there. Can you talk us through these concepts, exploitation and alienation? What do these mean specifically within Marxist thinking? Right. So, you know, because of this foundational issue, which is that we have no choice but to sell our labor, uh, the way Marx talked about it is capitalists need to find workers that are free in the double sense. You know, we're free in the sense that we're no longer serfs that have to live and work on one plot of land. We can be deployed to work wherever the economy needs us. And we're also free of our ability to produce our own subsistence. We're free of of having property, really. And that's what makes us so exploitable. And what essentially happens, right, is that our labor power under capitalism has become a commodity, which can be bought and sold for a wage. And Marx referred to it as a magical goose of capitalism that lays golden eggs, because what the capitalist pays us in a wage versus the actual products of our labor are two very different things. Capitalists buy from us a commodity, our labor power, which actually has the power to create new value. So the example that I that I often use and that I use in my book is of Starbucks, right? Where let's say they pay you in the United States something like $120 a day. That's the the wage that, you know, is deemed to be <laughs> enough to get you to come back to work the next mm. day. The sort of bare minimum to reproduce your ability to come back the next day. But you can produce $120 worth of fancy coffees in about an hour. So in an hour, you've reproduced the value of what they've paid you. And then, you know, even once you then account for the use of the machinery at Starbucks or whatever, let's say the next six hours or so are free labor. That's where you can't just after an hour say, look, you know, fair is fair. I made 120 bucks for you. That's what you paid me. I'm going to go home. The rest of the day is theirs. You know, you, they own your your labor power for that amount of time. The rest of the day is essentially stolen labor. And out of that is what, as Marx talked about it, is where surplus value uh, grows out of. So that's kind of like the, the the basics of exploitation. And and then yes, that means that we're we're alienated from our very ability. To produce, I mean, it's it's the most human intrinsic quality, right? That we can we can produce, we can subsist, we can make use of our environment, develop tools. All of these things are, you know, the most intrinsic thing that you can say about humanity. And we've been alienated from our own labor, so that somebody else owns our our labor power 
and our our ability to produce and and then we we become even further alienated right because we get paid in a wage all of the transactions that happen under capitalism happen through you know the intermediary of money so we're not producing for Starbucks and then come home with you know a thousand cups of coffee thankfully but we come home with our wage and we take that to the supermarket where we buy the products of somebody else's labor but it's not seen that way it's all of it is through the intermediary of money where everything now is a relationship to things as as opposed to a relationship to people it's not that i'm trading in my labor for somebody else's labor and i know where that lettuce grew and who grew it etc it's it's a completely kind of quantitative transaction that takes place Mm. and I don't want to spend too long talking about this because we could probably do an entire episode about the labor theory of value but can you explain very schematically your interpretation of what Marx thought about the link between the exploitation of labor power value and profits within capitalism right so the labor theory of value is something that a lot of people get tripped up on and it's usually attributed to Marx and he's definitely the the economist that most, you know, flushed it out and used it as the basis for dissecting capitalism, but it was really an idea that most classical economists before Marx's time, Adam Smith and David Ricardo and a whole host of other classical economists talked about the labor theory of value in some form or fashion, which is basically the idea that labor produces value. That what really matters at the end of the day is how much labor has gone into producing something. And so for Marx, the way that he talked about it and the way that he talked about value is that he split up the concept of, you know, within every commodity, every commodity has what he called a use value and an exchange value. The use value is what you use something for. You eat some bread. um, That's its use value. And its exchange value is what it exchanges for relative to other commodities. So how many you know, loaves of bread roughly can you exchange for a car or whatever? And what matters in determining something's exchange value is how much labor time it takes to produce it. Not just uh, how long it takes to bake a loaf of bread, but also including like how long it took to produce the various inputs that went into it, the flour and the amount of time that you need to use a stove for it or, or what have you. Um, so all of these components make up the exchange value of something, how much, how much labor time has gone into producing it relative to other things. Now it's like an important caveat there is that it's not, so it can't really, it can't be used as a price index because there's a, f- a few different layers between the process of production and how we think about exchange value. And then when a price tag, get slapped onto it at the end of the process, which has also to do with supply and demand and currency prices, et cetera. But it, it is important in terms of understanding what is it that kind of drives the, 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 the growth of value over time, the determination of value relative to other commodities, that really it has everything to do with the amount of labor that goes into producing it. And that's why, you know, no matter how much redundancies there are, you know, or how much extra steel or cars we have on the market, they're never going to be cheaper than 
you know, a loaf of bread or, mm. you know, because it's just capitalists are not going to sell it for as little as a loaf of bread, which takes a lot less time to produce. Empire is another one of those concepts that gets used in very different ways, even on the left, actually, when people talk about empire and imperialism. And in Marxist thinking, it has a very specific meaning that relates to this question of labor power and value. Can you talk a little bit about Marxist theories of uh, of imperialism and empire? One of the things that Marx talks about quite a lot is the tendency towards concentration and centralization of capital, Mm. that capital becomes essentially, you know, more and more concentrated into bigger and bigger units. And this happens both through, you know, the accumulation of capital over time, where, you know, in the way that capital grows exponentially through profits, you know, so you start out with one Walmart store and you end up with a bazillion Walmart stores. It can, it can happen through that, that process um, of, of capital growing through exploitation and, and the extraction of profit and through other means. I don't want to say Walmart only did it that way. Mm. And then also through, you know, centralization through companies buying each other out and, um, becoming greater and greater monopolies and and so on. And that this happens through, you know, the process of capital accumulation and competition, that the economies of scale win out, that capital uses credit and finance in order to buy out weaker capitals, that through the process of economic crises, the bigger capitals tend to to win out and and then out of the wreckage of the crisis can buy up on the cheap all sorts of other, you know, bankrupt companies or the assets of failing companies and so on. Over time, there's this tendency towards a concentration and centralization of capital and through, you know, the growth of of monopolies, which then have increased power within their home states. And there develops this fusion, basically, of capital and the state to, to varying degrees. Certainly a fusion in terms of interests, you know, that the political class, the government benefits from the tremendous revenues of its, you know, biggest companies and will go to bat for them. And also there's, you know, also a fusion of institutional and personnel between companies and and the state uh, and so on. And so you have states that go to bat for their companies. And this happens, you know, and, and, and so the competition that you can see internally within each country among different corporations, as there develop bigger monopolies and greater fusion of, um, of companies and their states, that spills over into international competition backed by trade wars, backed by protectionist measures, backed by ultimately the threat of force and war and so on. And then so you have each country going to bat through various trade agreements, etc. and um, subsidies. But at the same time, as we have the like protectionism on the one hand, 
there's a need for breaking down national borders for trade and investment. And there's those two things are happening at the same time. And of course, there's disagreements among different politicians and different parts of the capitalist class about which to emphasize when, you know, when do you break down as many borders as possible in in the name of free trade? And when do you, you know, lock up the borders and push through the most protectionist measures uh, in order to shore up your, the, the profits of your companies? What are the ways in which we can kind of observe empirically the effects of, of imperialism, particularly things like value transfer, uneven and combined development, but also, I suppose, more modern manifestations of imperialism, which have more to do with uneven integration into international financial markets? Right. Well, one of the, the key things that, that happens is the countries that exist at the core of the capitalist, the global capitalist economy are also the ones that have all the access to financial institutions that are based in their home countries or or other countries but have access to those things. Obviously, the United States has a great deal of power because it's both economic and military might, and that's backed up by then the dollar being the global currency of trade uh, and all of the the benefits that that flow from there. And you have these financial institutions that can, because they're backed by the military and economic might of their, you know, of the imperial nations, can go into countries, extract resources and financial transactions that are to the benefit of the financial investors, the hedge funds, et cetera, rather than the local economies. And partly as a result of that, and partly, you know, historically over the last few decades with the growth of just incredible amounts of debt that has accumulated in the, in the global South, that you have countries that servicing the interest on their global debt has become you know, one of the top priorities of the economy, because that's, Mm. you know, the only access they have to continuing investment is through credit, through these incredibly uneven and exploitative relationships. And so, you know, we can see it through this current crisis very brutally and dramatically that the countries that can afford to can kind of buy their way out of this crisis and gener- you know print out money so to speak generate trillions of dollars towards shoring up their economies towards shoring up their financial systems and much of the global south has access to none of that and so it just further entrenches a dependency on um, on countries of the global north and so you see you know, the same countries that are, um, have the least access to credit, the least access to vaccines, um, the least access to the proper amount of, you know, health infrastructure, you know, are paying the price in what will be not just now, but over the long term, just a devastating, devastating years to come, you know, while, while like where we are in the, in the United States, you know, there are not that we, there aren't lots of problems attached to the vaccine rollout here, but 
you know, basically buying up, you know, millions of, of doses, buying up all of the resources that are that are needed to to actually um, battle the the pandemic, as well as the the economic crisis. You know, being able to just mm-hmm. churn out trillions of dollars to shoring up the financial markets, et cetera. What are some of the main crisis tendencies that Marx identified within the capitalist world system? So, you know, Marx never wrote in just one place a completed here's my theory of crisis. There's bits and pieces of it throughout his writing. And so there's a lot of debate about what's important, what's to emphasize, what's to not emphasize. The thing that probably as a starting point should be uncontroversial among Marxists uh, is to say that there's a built-in contradiction within the capitalist system of producing what I referred to before as use value, producing commodities mm. that need to be used, but that really only matter to the capitalist insofar as they are exchange values, insofar as mm. you pay a price for them. And that whole distinction between you know goods for need versus the needs of capital to profiteer, from there flow many problems and many contradictions. Obviously, many problems for the vast majority of humanity, and that goes without saying, is that things like healthcare, uh, education, natural planetary resources are all seen as you know, inputs into a production process and are all about um, how, how much they can, you know, how much can be profiteered off of them rather than you know, our basic needs. So there's there's an obvious problem right there, but but even from the perspective of the capitalists and a sort of what it means to have a healthy economy from from the capitalist perspective, it means all sorts of all sorts of problems uh, and contradictions built in. First of all, you have to be able to not just produce a profit by extracting extra, you know extracting labor from workers at the workplace, you also have to be able to sell that. Whereas in previous societies, things were made in order to consume. Under capitalism, the, the process is, is revert, has been disjointed completely. Things are produced in order to sell them. And then later on, you know, you'll find out whether anyone's going to buy them. Mm. Um, and so there's a, there's a mad rush to produce more, to accumulate more profits, to gain market share. And this is done separate from considerations of certainly what's needed, which would be the sane and rational thing to do. But from the capitalist perspective, what can be bought? The difference between demand in terms of what people need and effective demand, what people can actually buy. So instead of how building housing on the basis of how many people need houses, which is not like the most simple question. It requires some complex planning. We need to figure out who needs houses and where and mm. how to build them. But the housing market is not based on those questions. It's based on much more difficult and ephemeral questions of who can buy what housing, when, and what financing exists in order to make that possible. And it's actually an incredibly unplanned system very planned when it comes to 
you know, individual workplaces in an, one Amazon plant, you know, you could time the movements of workers by the second and, you know, make sure that people don't take breaks long enough to go to the bathroom and pee. You know, um, it's, it's, it's very rigidly planned inside of the workplaces, but very much unplanned when it comes to what happens outside of the workplace and, and uh, on the market. So that's sort of like a fundamental contradiction that goes on. And out of that flow, different concepts that Marx talks about and get emphasized in different ways by, by different Marxists. But the question of overproduction, you know, propensity to constantly accumulate and accumulate and accumulate or else fall behind and lose out on market share and lose out on the ability to invest in the newest technologies and, and keep ahead of the game. That propensity to constantly accumulate runs ahead of the ability of the market to absorb all of those goods, both in the sense of what workers can actually pay for, since our wages don't keep pace with that frenetic production of the capitalist class and the, and the growth of profits, but also in the sense of what other capitalists buy up, um, you know, that because it's unplanned, there's one problem in one industry, then flows into, you know, every other industry and, and what Marx talked about as like disproportionalities between, between the various capitalist industries as well. So, you know, so that's one element of it. You know, another important aspect of what Marx talked about in terms of the contradictions of capitalism is what he called the tendency for the rate of profit to fall. That as capitalist ventures grow and continue to grow, there's there's a constant tendency towards replacing labor with machinery, you know, that you want to produce as quickly and as efficiently as possible, have fewer and fewer workers wield greater and greater technology, and cut down on the amount of labor costs associated with what you produce. And the reason for that is is competition, right? That companies have to produce as cheaply as possible in order to sell their goods as cheaply as possible so that their goods are bought as opposed to, um, you know, their competitors. But in the process, as you have more and more investment going towards machinery and technology and the means of production versus labor costs, the actual percentage or ratio or whatever of the production process of your your the inputs into your production process that is labor power diminishes and so that is the part of the production process that creates a new value and so that whole process and that whole tendency means that over time there's a greater and greater strain on the rate of profit that capitalists are able to produce their, their goods with. It doesn't necessarily mean that the mass of profits, like the total amount of profits they produce goes down, but that the overall rate of profit, how much they invest versus how much profit they get out of it would diminish. However, you know, and this is a lot of where the, the debates come in, there's, there's countervailing tendencies to that, which Marx himself spent a long time discussing. It's not just like the whole thing just goes down and down and down until it plummets and crashes, but it, it creates a strain on capitalist profitability overall. And, and it creates a lot of volatility. And again, it creates more of 
what we were talking about before, the, the tendency towards the concentration of capital, that the companies that can weather that kind of strain on profitability are those that are the largest companies, the largest capitals. There's obviously, again, you know, as we've prefaced all of these questions with saying no kind of definitive Marxist theory of the state, perhaps even more so than any of these other concepts. Mm-hmm. Is it sufficient simply to argue that capitalist states are nothing more than committees for managing the affairs of the bourgeoisie? Or should we have a bit more of a sophisticated understanding of the role of the capitalist states? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. I mean, I think in general, it's never sufficient to just fall back on the kind of basic idea that Marx and Engels laid out because capitalism is, you know, a constantly moving, constantly adapting and changing system. And so, you know, it, it, it makes it very hard to just use Marx's writing as a immutable blueprint to map onto the present situation. So in general, you know, it's always a good idea to further theorize and and deepen our understanding. I think it is a very good starting point to say that the state is, you know, uh, a a committee of, you know, the, you know, executive branch of, of the capitalist class. But of course, there's, you know, there's a lot that goes on uh, within that and different states play different roles. certainly in terms of what we were talking about before, imperialism in relation to each other. And there's different, you know, depending on what, you know, which administration is in office and what what aspects of the state, you know, then get used and, and to what to what purpose, you know, all of that needs further investigation and 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 current analysis. In the US, you know, if you look at the relationship of the Trump administration to to other countries to trade agreements um, to trade wars as well as the uh, handling of the economy internally versus the difference between that and the Biden administration. Obviously, there's some continuity there, and in particular around questions of imperialism. Uh, but there's also a lot of big changes that are happening, and that you know those are those are important to be able to analyze in their own in their own right, apart from just saying. Broadly speaking, yes, we know the state is there to to look out for the long term interests of the capitalist class and the capitalist class as a whole, you know. But of course, there's lots of debates and divisions within the capitalist class, um, and there's sections of the capitalist class that benefit from different things. I mean, the health industry in the United States, in some ways, holds the rest of the economy hostage. I mean, for a lot of for a lot of companies and for a lot of industries, it would probably be to, towards their benefit if we had a national healthcare system and they didn't have to pay out to their workers private health insurance plans. But the health insurance industry in this country is a, a very powerful and entrenched multi-billion dollar industry that has its own interests, you know, and, and those interests are taken care of by uh, by politicians, even though Mm. Um, it may not be to the benefit of the, of the capitalist class as a whole. 
One last question, and this is the biggest and probably the least fair question because I don't have an answer to it, and I'm <laughs> sure that you probably won't either. The podcast is obviously called A World to Win. We've spent a lot of time analysing capitalism and not much time talking about how we move beyond it. Now, historically, and in the world that Marx was living in, you did have organised working class movements that came close to, and in some cases did, take power, whether that's over capitalist enterprises or over the actual state itself. Today, we lack that same coherent, organised, geographically concentrated revolutionary subject. So where do we go from here? Where should the left be focusing or organising? And what kind of coalition should we be trying to build to create the kind of world that we have been discussing, one in which the division between capital and labour ceases to exist? Yes, that is an unfair question. I agree. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'll say a a couple of things. One is is a general point, which is that I do think today, and I'm, you know, not to date myself too much, but speaking as someone who's been a socialist and on the left for over 20 years now, we have much, much greater opportunities, both ideologically and practically on the ground in terms of organizing and in terms of building socialist ideals and alternatives. There's a much wider resonance and identification with left-wing and socialist ideas. Um, You could see it, you know, in the United States, the popularity of Bernie Sanders' campaign and of the squad, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and so on, on a smaller scale, but still very significant, the growth of an organization like the Democratic Socialists of America, the largest now socialist organization to exist in the U.S. for uh, many decades, is close to reaching 100,000 members. All of these things are a reflection of a society that is in deep crisis, you know, that we have mm. these economic, public health climate, racial crises um, happening at the same time. So, you know, we have this moment of really deep crisis that is, you know, the focal point of it is the pandemic, but it's, the system has been in, in, in crisis and for quite some time. I mean, the amount of inequality and polarization that existed even before the pandemic is, you know, phenomenal. In the United States, it's something like 1% of the population owns about a third of the wealth. And then the bottom half of the population shares out between 1% and 2% of the wealth. That's just an incredible amount of inequality to upkeep. And the numbers are greater when you when you look at the whole picture um, globally. So this is all feeding, you know, I think much deeper and wider association with socialist politics um, and with left wing politics in general. And I think, you know, that's part of why I think there's such a need right now for also more political education, you know, that people are going through you know, are identifying with the ideas broadly, but not quite sure what it means. You know, I think of myself, like when I was going through that process, when I was becoming politicized in the 90s, you know, that I just 
saw myself as a socialist because it mostly in the negative in terms of what I could no longer identify with as a Democrat or as, you know, as somebody who, who thought that, you know, we could kind of tinker with the system to make it nicer. There's a need for, for something um, much more in depth for people to latch onto. But I think, you know, more concretely where the rubber hits the road on all, on, on a lot of these questions is, you know, how do we organize within the working class? How do we organize the labor movement? You know, we're, we're up against some pretty challenging circumstances. On the one hand, like this opening that I think, like I said, hasn't existed in a long time. On the other hand, a historic weakness globally of the left for quite some decades and a disorganization of our side you know, there's a lot of rebuilding that needs to happen, you know. So we see here in, in, in the U.S. and Alabama where there was a um, union drive that failed at Amazon. Actually, you know, polls show that the majority of people are in favor of unionizing. But then when you actually have to get down and organize people and people's livelihoods are on the line and they're at, at the whim of, of, of these companies' anti-union uh, behavior and the threat of of layoffs and retribution um, and so on, that becomes a much more difficult venture. And so I think part of what needs to happen is a greater and greater, if not fusion, but coalition of left forces with labor forces in order to, in order to rebuild our fighting capacity. You know, we have here in the U.S. the the, the PRO Act, like a sweeping pro-labor legislation. And that's something that the labor movement has gotten behind. It's something that DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America, has gotten behind. And they're actually working together. Unions and DSA members are doing joint phone bankings, are doing joint canvassing, all, all of that kind of thing. I think there's a lot of important potential there. And I think that's not the only thing that needs to happen. But it is really critical to rebuilding our fighting capacity. And I think the last thing that I will say, you know, in terms of that, the the sort of key pieces of that coalition is that, you know, we've seen this incredible rupture of uh, racial justice organizing in this country to go back to what, you know, you were asking about earlier about the role of the state. And one of the reasons why it's not enough to just say, blanket statements about the state, you have to also understand, you know, the racial violence behind the state and where does that come from and what keeps that going. Um, But we have had this massive rupture on a scale that is historically unprecedented in terms of just numbers and scale of, of every county in this country has had protests at it, um, which is really unheard of. And that struggle has to be connected with the the labor struggles. It has to be connected with the climate struggles. There has to be a commingling and a a building of, of real solidarity, practical solidarity on the ground in order for us to have like a stronger left that can, that can vie for, for real, transformative and and systematic change in in this country and and around the world. Thank you so much, Hadassia, for joining me on this excellent episode of A World to Win. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. 